Uh, what, we're, what we're talking about this morning is, um, is really cool to me. Uh, it's something I've wanted to do for a long time, but we, we kind of got in the habit when we started Antioch of doing uh, what we called the Sermon Biography Series. There's nothing new under the sun. We stole this from other places, but uh, the idea of just camping on the history of the church or something historical by taking a figure in church history and kind of seeing how that person is a jumping off point for us understanding our own times and then even our own life of faith a little bit better. And this morning, we're going to look at Soren Kierkegaard. And Soren Kierkegaard is a, a Danish philosopher. He's my favorite philosopher. Uh, was a Christian. Was an ordained priest or a pastor, actually, even though he never served in that position. Uh, lived in the 1800s. And I just kind of want to give you a little bit of background on him and then jump more into his ideas because that's what's really fascinating to me and it's kind of really all we're going to have time for this morning. But a little bit on Kierkegaard. Kierkegaard was born May 5th, 1813. And he died on November 11th, 1855. Does anyone know the greatness of November 11th? Why it's so significant? That's my birthday. Um, <laughs> he died on November 11th, uh, 1855. Uh, he was the seventh and last child. His name, Kierkegaard, um, kind of the history of it, the etymology of it, is Kierke would be church and guard uh, would be farm. So the name stems back to his ancestors that would have had a farm near the church, Kierkegaard. Uh, Kierkegaard, um, early on, he died very young. Uh, he didn't live, he only lived into his 40s. But early on was radically... Um, sold out kind of in his devotion to God in his faith. He was engaged, he got engaged to Regina Olson in 1840, and he broke it off in 1841. Um, there's a picture of her, that's Regina Olson, and uh, I thought some of you might want to wonder, like, if he broke off the engagement, maybe she was not pretty or something. Um, I'll let you decide or not, but he broke it off. I'm not saying she's pretty. I'm letting you decide whether she's pretty or not. <laughs> Man, um, I mean what I mean, not what I say. It's, the first principle of understanding me is, is I don't say what I mean. I mean what I mean. Um, all right, so Regina Olson, and we're going to learn about that because literally the book, the work we're going to kind of talk through uh, is written almost in some sense autobiographically spelling out Kierkegaard's own life in this book through the lens of Abraham and Isaac. Uh, and so you kind of, we'll get to kind of why he broke it off or what's going on there. Um, but he broke off his engagement in 1841. She went on to marry the literary historian Friedrich Schlegel. Um, now to understand Kierkegaard, uh, you have to understand the, the times. And the times uh, in, in that he lived in, intellectually in the, in the academy, he, he earned what would have been the equivalent of a PhD today uh, in philosophy. And in, in those days, Hegel or the Hegelian school was the dominant kind of system of ideas. So what you've got is the advent of the scientific revolution. Does that make sense? So science is really coming on big, and science is all about mapping uh, what is reality? And through reason and through observation, finding out what is true about reality. 
Now, the, Hege the Hegelian school of philosophy was all about trying to develop the systems, the philosophical systems, the formulas, so to speak, that would map onto reality at a really big macro level. And so there's this kind of idea that history is evolving and kind of going somewhere. And, and how, do we, how do we map that out philosophically? This is what's going on in philosophy, kind of concurrently with what's going on in science. Does that make sense? Well, that's a real macro look at stuff. It's, it's really missing the individual. It's, it's, it's stepping back and seeing trends or trying to say, how does the movement of, of humankind as a whole, in some sense, um, progress into the future? And you have to understand that to understand what Kierkegaard was reacting against, because Kierkegaard is the architect of, of the opposite. He's the architect of the individual and the focus on the individual. And so he was a prolific author, author wrote more than 30 books, most of them under de, underneath uh, different pseudonyms. And the, the reason he wrote under all these different pseudonyms is it really was a device for what he was trying to do. He was, he was all about the subjective truth in the individual. And so to get at that, he would, he would put himself in different viewpoints and speak through different kind of voices that he would create with these different pseudonyms, sometimes even contradicting his own works to drive points and to, to elicit the tensions and the paradoxes and things like that, but was a ridiculously prolific author. Um, to die in his early 40s and to write more than 30 books, most of them hundreds of pages, uh, and at the same time keeping journals that, that literally fill a library, um, this is really what he was committed to. Okay, so what I want to do is uh, focus on the driving, the central theme of Kierkegaard's life and, and his writings, and then we're going to jump off and look at this book called Fear and Trembling. But Kierkegaard was the father of a, a, a philosophical system that was later to be known as existentialism, uh, as existentialism. And now what existentialism was for Kierkegaard was simply this, that truth is subjectivity. Subjectivity is truth. As opposed to truth being external, objective things, truth was actually found in the subjective person uh, and not outside of that person in the systems or the formulas or, say, the doctrines of the day. And so what he would say is you have to figure out what you are supposed to do. What am I supposed to do and I have to find that thing that I'm supposed to do and do it or become it or be it in order to become fully human to be what I was destined to be or designed to be and so uh, finding that and becoming that or entering into that is finding in some sense my essence okay and so for him um, that essence is the driving question and the calling of God on your life was really what it was all about. What is God calling you to be or to do? Who has he made you to be? Finding that and committing yourself 100% to that and only that. Now later on with the French existentialists, the atheistic, existentialism really became atheistic um, in the, the 1900s. 
but that same formula lost the idea of finding this, this thing, kind of God's calling, where, where this essence, the thing that you're supposed to be, um, being in God's calling, and instead it became this. There is no God. There is no essence, okay, to existence. And so your free choice is going to dictate what you become. And so in our society today, uh, we go looking for ourselves. We try things. We try and treat ourselves as, as an artwork, and we try and create ourselves into something unique to find this essence that we're going to become. Uh, and that, that is, is uncharted. It's just wide open, and so it's all about the individual choice. And so for, for Kierkegaard, it was not about this wide open field of possibilities, but it was about finding God's will for your life. But the idea is that the subject needs to map onto and find what is true, okay? Um, and that's the subject of truth. I'm going to get to that just a little bit more in a second. Um, but I want to read for you a little bit of kind of where Kierkegaard's at with this. Um, now, he would have hated being called the father of a system just like Nietzsche would have. He and Nietzsche, Nietzsche was a little bit later on in the 1800s, and they independently kind of came to these same ideas of the individual being against the, the crowd or the herd, uh, and the idea that systems or philosophical formulas were kind of the enemy. And so both of them would have hated being lumped into something where it would have been a system. They both felt misunderstood. Kierkegaard um, said this, which I think is kind of funny. He says, sometimes people misunderstand me when I write about being misunderstood. And what he wants to say here is, Um, that science and scholarship, this is a direct quote, want to teach that becoming objective is the way. Christianity, however, teaches that the way to become subjective, that the way is to become subjective, to become a subject. Subjectivity, direct quote, is truth to him. Now, if I I can have two volunteers, I want to try and illustrate this to you so that we really grasp it, but I just need two people to come up here and, and look a little awkward. Just for a little bit. All right, that's one. All right, there's two. Um, so, so let's just try and visually, because you know, visual learning is a good thing. But let's try and visually express this. So, the idea for Kierkegaard is that God, um, in the in the original instance. Um, that this was truth, that truth was we were with God, that there was a connection there, that there was unity there, that was like-mindedness, that that everything was together. Does that make sense? And so for Kierkegaard, the definition of sin is when that truth is broken, okay? That our separation from God, our distance from God... (laughs) Um, our break with God, our being um, singled out from God and doing things disconnected from God, uninformed by God, that all of this is sin. And it's untruth. Okay, So for Kierkegaard, the whole of the Christian program is is simply this, that, that to overcome this and to find truth is for the subject for the individual, okay, to 
find this position again, which has to do with experience, uh, their reality, action, has to do with everything about that person. Does that make sense? And what Kierkegaard was trying to say is that the program of his day, and it's a lot like our day, is one of external knowledge. That we are separated from God, we're not living in a position of truth. That's why when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, it's because he was completely united with God. He said, all I say, all I do comes from the Father. The Father and I are one. And then he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so when we're separated from this, and Kierkegaard is saying is the program, whether it's science, philosophy, or theology, is all about maneuvering and crafting the systems and the structures and the formulas on paper. Okay, you understand what I mean by that? Doctrinal truth or, or science, things that correspond with reality um, and, and seeing it on paper, that that way of viewing truth doesn't do anything for, this, for the, the reality of where the subject is. Does that make sense? We can know all the truth and, and, and still be untrue. What do we call that? We call it hypocrisy. It's, it's the greatest form of, of I mean, it is, it is the greatest natural thing that I think we have an aversion to. We, we, we react against hypocrisy innately. And we can have all the knowledge here, but if there's nothing true about us in relationship to God or to, to what's going on, then there's, it's, it's hypocrisy. Now, what's the greatest thing that we value? We just intuit it. And if we see it, we value it. It's a little bit of an overused word, but the concept is so just foundational. And it's, it's this. It's, it's authenticity. Right? And what... What Kierkegaard is saying is only this, only this is authentic. Only the subjective individual finding truth by being truth, by, by entering into that, that relationship, by overcoming um, the, the break, the breach, sin, only this is real. All this other head game stuff really doesn't get at the core of, of what's going on. And so Kierkegaard says, subjectivity is truth. Whether it's true that you're either far from God or that you're close. It's true about you this morning, regardless of what your theology is, that you are either in a position of faith and trusting God or not faith and giving lip service to God. Does that make sense? So what's true is not what's in your head. What's true about you is what's really going on in the heart. It's kind of what Jesus tried to get at by going against the scribes and the Pharisees and saying it's only what's in your heart. And so I want to just read one last thing um, as you guys stay there. But for Kierkegaard, only God could really initiate this whole thing. So listen to this. He says this. One who gives the learner... Not only the truth, but also the condition for understanding it is more than the teacher. If it is to be done, 
It is to be done by God himself. And so Kierkegaard is saying that as we're over here in a position of untruth, in a position of lacking faith, in a, in a position of existing in sin, a break in that relationship from God, he's saying that the teacher and the Hegelian idea, the Hegelian sense of it, was the one that taught you all the fancy formulas that had been invented in the last 20, 30, 40, 50 years and, and, and taught you things about reality, okay? Um, science as a correspondence view of reality. This corresponds with reality. The, the acceleration rate for gravity is, is 9.81 meters per second. That corresponds with reality. Does that make sense? And the Hegelian school is that we're going to teach you all the things that correspond with reality. And then you'll have truth. And he's saying the teacher that actually can take you from here to here and make you true subjectively in reality has to be more than the teacher that just gives you information. Uh, It has to be God himself. Thanks, guys. Um, And where we're going to go with this now is talking about this dynamic of faith and where God is at in that dynamic of faith. Because, again, this is all theologically driven from Kierkegaard or at least... um, immersed in scripture where where it's simply saying that we are far from God and that God himself is the one that bridges that gap and and brings us in okay one one of the one of the things that's helped me always with this idea of faith and, and salvation is is the little phrase God saves sinners we don't save ourselves I mean when you're in a pit you don't climb out by yourself um just because there's something outside of the pit that that you want to get to um, God saves sinners. He's the one that reaches out and helps us become like his son, that helps us become true, that helps us become um, close with him and in this relationship with him. It's the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit born from God's Spirit in us that really begins to make us authentic. Does that make sense? All right. Hopefully... Hopefully some, you get some of that. But where, where we want to go is kind of look at how that plays itself out in this story of Abraham and Isaac in the life of faith. Um, Kierkegaard wrote a whole book called Fear and Trembling on the story of Abraham and Isaac. Um, Fear and Trembling, the title is taken from Philippians, 2 chapter, uh, Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, where it says, Paul says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You guys remember that passage? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And he, he, he uses that paradoxical thing um, to kind of wrap this whole story of Abraham and Isaac up. But I want to read it to you. If you've got a Bible, you can turn to Genesis. And this is one of the most foundational stories in all of the Christian scriptures. We'll see first in chapter 15 of Genesis this. God is making this promise to Abram, who he renames Abraham shortly hereafter. But he's making this promise to Abram that I've called you. I've led you out of your own homeland. Here's the idea, Abram. Um, The idea is I'm going to make you the father of many nations. You're going to have descendants uh, as countless as the stars. This is is kind of the promise. And And we'll just read it here. The word came to him. And said, this man 
will be your heir. Uh, this man will not be your heir, this other son, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He's, um, God is telling him about Isaac, who he's going to have soon. Um, and then he took, God took Abram outside and said, look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And then here we go, Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Abram believed the Lord, and he, God, credited it to him as righteousness. Abram had faith, believed in God, and God credited that to him as righteousness. Does that make sense? Okay, so if we flip over now to chapter 22, we see something really interesting. So time has gone by. This promised son, Isaac, is now born and has grown. And so now Abraham has this son, Isaac, who's, who's to be the heir. And from him are supposed to come all these uh, descendants, as many as the stars. And God gets Abraham and says this. Sometime later, God tested Abraham. What is he testing? He's testing his faith. And Abraham says, here I am. And God said, take your son, Isaac, your only son, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about. Not the kind of thing you expect to hear when you kneel in prayer in the morning, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's crazy. It's, it's, it's crazy. Verse 3. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his donkey. He took with him his two, two of his servants and his son Isaac. And when he had cut enough wood for the burnt offering, he set out for the place God had told him about. And on the third day, so this is a three-day journey. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in the distance. He said to his servants, stay here with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. We will worship, and then we will come back to you. We will come back to you. Abraham took the wood for the burnt offering and placed it on his son Isaac, and he himself carried the fire and the knife. And as the two of them went on together, Isaac spoke up and said to his father Abraham, a very logical question, Father, yes, my son, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. And when they reached the place God had told him about, Abraham built an altar there and, and arranged the wood on it. He bound his son Isaac and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. And then he reached out his hand and took the knife to slay his son. But the angel of the Lord called out to him from heaven, Abraham, Abraham. Here I am, he replied. Do not lay a hand on the boy. Do not do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God because you have not withheld from me your son, your only son. Abraham looked up and there's a thicket and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns and he went over and he took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the place 
the Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, excuse me, that because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. Your descendants will take possession of the cities of your enemies, and through your offspring, all nations on earth will be blessed, because you have obeyed me. Then Abraham returned to his servants, and they set off together for Beersheba. So, Abraham is promised that his, he will have a son, and that son will be the father of many nations. He will have all these descendants. And he believed God. He had faith in God. And God credited it to him as righteousness. He was right with God. Then later God comes and tests that very faith. That very faith by requiring from him the object of the promise. So the promise was Isaac. Now there is Isaac. And God says, go sacrifice Isaac for me. Will you really do that? Are you trusting me to make good on this promise, or are you going to leave me and trust that you have the object of your dreams right here and that you can make it happen on your own? And so God tests his faith, and Abraham goes, and um, God stops him and says, Now I know that you really believe me because you have not withheld your son. Jesus will later say, that unless you hate mothers and fathers and, and sons and daughters and wives and husbands, okay, then you can have no part. And what he means by that is that nothing held above God um, will allow you to also have faith in God. That if you have faith in God, then all things you hold you're holding in faith um, under God. I heard a story of Corey Tim Boom. She lived evidently um, in Southern California for a while. I, I didn't know that, but Corey Tim Boom was back in World War II, and it was it's a Chuck Swindoll story. And, and he was pastor pastoring, and she was in his church, and um, his family stays around late. That kind of thing, typical pastor deal. Kids are playing. Everybody else kind of. Uh, is gone, and Corey Tim Boom was there, and um, came and took Chuck's hand, and said, "Give me your hand." And she pointed to the kids, and you know, had him look at his kids, and she pried open his hand, and she said, "Hold them loosely. You know, trust them to God. Hold them loosely, and whatever." the greatest thing is in your life, even the thing of promise, has to be held underneath our faith, our trust in God, that he's the one that's going to deliver us. He's the one that's going to make good on all of it. And so God tests Abraham, and Abraham passes this test. And what passing it simply means is this. The faith was proven through action. If there was a chair right here and I I said to you, I really, really believe that that chair will hold me up. That faith hidden away in my heart 
is proven when I choose to sit in it. Does that make sense? When I really show that I will put myself in a position of trust to that thing that I say I believe in. And so faith that resides deep within is made manifest through action, through obedience. Okay, so let's get to Kierkegaard for just a minute. Um, Kierkegaard uses this to, to set up kind of a threefold way of looking at, at life. Let me, uh, okay, he, he makes these three distinctions, and he says there's the aesthetic, there's the ethical, and then there's the religious. What drives the aesthetic is desire. This is kind of just base hedonism. It's, it's, it's immaturity in some sense. It's just natural life. That What drives action here is desire. I, I desire something. That's what motivates my action to do certain things. Does that make sense? That's just a, the basic kind of starting point. The ethical, what motivates, what motivates action here is law or custom, and via that, the crowd. What motivates action at this ethical level is that I'm acting in, in alignment with the customs and the standards that we've set up as a society to, to keep us all in step. Does that make sense? And we all have a natural propensity to want to be in step, to be together, to be a part of the crowd, to fit in. Right? And so I do actions and, and I act a certain way because that's what's expected of me and I, I learn to do that. And that's not bad in and of itself. That's, that's good. We call that maturity. We, could, we call it character. But then there's this last one here that Kierkegaard has. And he says, what drives this is Faith. Now, the story of Abraham is a really interesting one for Kierkegaard because he says, no father desires or is motivated in any way, shape, or form to sacrifice their son. There's nothing of the aesthetic life that motivates a father to sacrifice a son. Okay, what about the ethical is there anything in the ethical mode of life that would motivate Abraham to sacrifice Isaac? The answer is no. How do you know that? He didn't tell his wife. There's no way for her to hear him say, oh, by the way, um, I'm going to go sacrifice her son. There's no there's no way for her to, to harmonize that except that there's no custom, there's no convention, there's no ethical tablet that says dads should go sacrifice their sons um, if they think they've heard from God. She won't buy it. His servants won't buy it. His son won't buy it. So he, he doesn't tell any of them. There is nothing... 
There is no standard here that Abraham can appeal to 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 ground this action, to justify this action. There's, There's nothing about the ethical, moral standards that will make anyone go, oh, I get it. Do you understand what I'm saying there? Kierkegaard would call this the teleological suspension of the ethical. Teleological meaning purposeful suspension of the ethical. Um, Have you ever thought if the Nazis came to my door and said, are you hiding a Jew in your house, that you would just lie to them? There's, that's actually a little bit complex. There's competing ethical systems. But for me, it would just be real easy. I'm suspending, you know, the the rules about lying here. Because I I have a, a stronger sense or a calling from God about, you know, but Kierkegaard would call this the, the teleological suspension of the ethical, that, that, that Abraham isn't going to be motivated by his personal desire. He's not going to be grounded in this action by the ethical. Rather, only faith, which is a very subjective, individual thing, is the only thing that can give rise to disobedience. It's the only thing that can motivate him on to this action. Does that make sense? So, so here's uh, Abraham called to do something that doesn't make sense and he resigns himself to doing this. We learn something about faith here, that faith is an all-in enterprise. Faith is not something where we're here and we can kind of throw faith at some things via a distance or does that make sense? This is the real this is a real paradox of what's happened to Christianity. In Christianity the last 150 years, we've this is this is where where the crowd, what Kierkegaard would say the crowd, the herd, where it has taken Christianity is to this place of understanding faith as Faith that God exists. That you're saved by faith, so faith is a good thing. You need to have faith. What is, what, is, what is faith? Faith is saying this, God, I believe you exist, and I believe you sent Jesus as your son to die for me. I believe that. That's what we've defined faith to mean. And so our life is here. We give lip service to that proposition, that objective truth, that thing on the piece of paper, but we ourselves never say, wow, God, I believe that you exist, that you sent your son, that I might be saved from the sin and the separation that is there, that I might be, in some sense, reborn as a son of yours with you in your love, that 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 is the agenda here, that I'm going to come back into that true relationship with you, togetherness, united with you, that I'm going to be called holy just as you are holy, which means that I can mix with you, white paint, mixing with white paint. When we're far from God, we're some shade of gray, we can't mix with God. There's this separation, but, but I'm going to be able to come back and have fellowship with the Spirit, that that's what's going on, and and. 
And I can inherit that through faith. Yes. I will leave all. It's like a portal in those Stargate movies. I will say goodbye to what was before. And by the strength you're going to give me, I will step through and now my life is, is hidden in Christ. It's no longer, Paul says this in Galatians, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I am, I am now found over here with God, not perfect, not trying to earn God's love, but by faith I've, I've taken this leap into an alternate reality to be with God. Rather than just saying, yeah, that thing on the piece of paper, or, oh, that sermon I'm hearing from the evangelist, yeah, I agree with that. That's cool. I can, I can sign to that. I can, you understand where I'm going with this? See, what, what Kierkegaard is getting at here in what he calls in this book the leap of faith is that it is a subjective truth about you. It's not mental assent to an objective statement, doctrinal piece of writing. That true faith is a subjective truth where we reach this point of resignation. And what Kierkegaard is going to say is resignation is the last step. Complete resignation, resigning ourselves to putting this behind and going forward. And then the next thing is really just, it's like a trust fall or jumping off the diving board for the first time or anything like that where we take a leap of faith. That's faith for Kierkegaard. And I think what's amazing about this is we realize that when we reach that point of resignation, and then we just jump. We're never more childlike than in that moment. Right? Let's, let's define childlike faith. When my daughter really comes and puts her trust in me, everything in the background or around her fades away and she locks into me and my daughter trusts me. And she will now go forward no matter what when she locks into me and has that faith of a child. And when we finally get to that point of all of our maturity, all of our rationality, all of our experience, all of our adultness, and we finally just say, you know what? Um, God's calling. And then we abandon ourselves to God. Our faith is not grounded in anything else. It's not grounded in our reason. It's not grounded in rational convention, the, the, what the crowd says is the way Christians should behave. It's not grounded in custom. It's not even necessarily grounded in immediate gratification of hedonistic pleasure. It's just grounded in hope. It's, 
Faith is grounded in faith. It's grounded in trust in God. It's grounded in the character of God. It's grounded in the promises of God. It's grounded in God. And we can use all these words, but at the end of the day, something really intangible about that relationship compels me and I jump forward, step forward, leap forward in faith and I abandon myself to God. I trust God. I can talk about it like swimming. Kierkegaard says, you know, you can hoist yourself up by the ceiling and talk about the swim motions. And you, you, might, you might get it. You might say some things that make sense. But the reality is, as you drop yourself in the water, there's an organicness, a truth, a, almost inability to, to cash it out in language about all the little things that go on with you then staying afloat. But the idea is you are now in faith. See, it's really interesting when the Bible says the righteous will walk by faith. It doesn't mean they will walk with a sentence off of some doctrinal statement ripped out of a book and tucked in their back pocket, and then they're going to walk. It's a very subjective statement, is it not? The righteous are those who are walking by faith. They've abandoned themselves to God and are now walking in light of the trust that they have that God will provide. Whether you don't see it now, whether you can't quite see it, you will get to that mountain that you will be able to name God provides. And we walk by faith. Here's... You know, Kierkegaard said of the crowd that where there is a crowd, there is untruth. What he really meant is when you are in the crowd to some degree, the, the need to be in step or the, the degree to which we're influenced by if I, if I harmonize with the crowd, then I'm okay, then I'm good, then I'm, I'm not out of step, then I'm, I must be safe. There's some untruth in that. And where there's the crowd, there's untruth. And what he wants to say is that the true life of faith (laughs) steps in and lives in light of what Kierkegaard calls the absurd. When you walk by faith, there's a very interesting quality that comes from that. And the quality is this. The crowd will not understand it. When I became a Christian at Clemson, the fraternity did not understand it. None of them. Um, When I went to seminary, nobody, not even relatives, understood it. That's my calling in, in abandoning myself to that calling. It doesn't mean you have to go to seminary or first join a fraternity so then you can leave it. I mean, it's... To be silly. Um, but it's me abandoning myself to my God. Nobody understands it. I can name people on staff, people sitting in the front row that make these decisions to leave logic because God is calling them and to abandon themselves to something unknown. All the things that make you feel comfortable or safe 
and you begin to lose those and all you've got is faith and you're walking by that faith and you know that's the crazy thing about faith is it's not grounded in the natural things I love being in swimming pools when I'm close to the edge and I'm like I can ground myself there all I gotta do is touch that wall and I'm grounded does that make sense I actually can swim, so don't, don't get the idea I can't swim good. But I, like, I don't like the ocean because I'm like, if I, in the middle of the ocean, if the boat goes away, there's nothing to grab hold. You know what I mean? Like that drive, that's my like worst, the worst way for me to die would be like in the middle of the ocean, under the ocean, and on fire. Like the, that would be like the worst way to die. But there's, there's nothing to like, there's nothing safe. And so Kierkegaard says, here's the crazy thing about Abraham. He resigned himself to this, and Kierkegaard calls this the night of faith. That faith alone is where he's at. Again, faith like a child. Because here's what we do with faith. We try to ground it. Do you know what I mean by that? Well, if, I, if, I, if God's calling me to leave this job, whew, okay, well, I can leave this job, but man, what happens if I get out in the middle of the ocean and there's nothing to grab hold of? I know. I'll leave this job, but what I'll do is I'll, and I'm going to try and create a, a fallback plan. Or I'm going to try and create a way to, to keep it safe. Or... God asked me to be moral, not sleep with my girlfriend, not cheat on my wife, not cheat on my taxes. Wow, what fun would there be in life then? Um, so I'll go to church. I'll even get a Bible. I might even join a Bible study. Heck, there's cute girls in Bible studies. That might work out. But I'm also going to live this way. Because what, what really happens if at the end of the day there is no God? And, and, and I missed all my chances for pleasure. So I, I'll be just Christian enough, but I'm still going to do enough of this. Not really bad, mind you, but just enough to, you know, not have regrets. Jesus says, you're either for me or against me. There is, this isn't faith, you see. You're trying to rationalize this faith by providing something else that will make it make sense to you. Notice what we do. We try to appeal to these two somehow, some way, to ground faith. Kierkegaard is just, I mean, this is why he broke up with Regina. He felt called by God to write and to walk down this road, this intellectual road. He wouldn't call it necessarily intellectual, but the one of challenging the church and writing about the cold, stale religiosity that's about formulas and creeds and behaviors and, and not about faith. And he felt that God had, 
had called him to this. And that he was only going to be true if he abandoned himself to that calling. That was the only thing that was going to make him human. And, and this, this, this relationship with this girl, he, he, he gave it up and felt like it was like his Isaac. So in this book, he puts himself in the position of Abraham. And Isaac is Regina. And he has to resign himself. And, and this is after the fact, talking about it, resigning himself to giving this thing away so that he can trust God. Subjectivity is truth. For me, this book defined faith for me. I was a single guy, 27, in ministry, in grad school, I read this. By the way, we have copies of this. It is the densest 70 or so pages you will ever read. So don't go buy this book. There you go. I read this. It changed my view of faith. And I realized there was a lot of things I wasn't trusting God for. Marriage was one of them. I, I needed to do it somehow on my own or I wasn't going to be happy or content until I had it. So it was like I took a drive while I was reading this solitude, just driving and praying and I was just so gushy. Oh God, I love you so much. You know, and I I mean, we can work ourselves and and, and all this emotion and I felt like after like two or three hours, I drove all the way to Big Bear and was driving around the the lake. It's like three in the morning. It's like the first word I heard from God. In all these hours of driving, and God said, then why are you shaking your fist at me? Because you're not married. And it just rocked me. And I realized I'd just been called out because there's all this fake emotionalism of me and you, God, and I love you so much. And God's like, yeah, well, as soon as you stop praying, you go through life shaking your fist at me. Because I have not yet given you what you desire. Ken, do you trust me? Will you walk by faith? So I started writing in my journal. I committed not to pursue. I I, I did. I mean, this is what you're supposed to. I was like, okay, God, from here on out, I'm not going to pursue a girl at all. You have to drop her in my lap. I will pursue ministry and you want me to be married, you drop her in my lap. So every night I would journal, God, I believe you can bring me a wife that would shock me, be beyond what I could do in my own human whatever, and and I'm trusting, I'm going to follow you. If you want that for me, you're going to have to drop her in my lap. A couple months later, my boss says, we're bringing you an intern. Um, That's how I got married. For me, now, now see, this is the beauty of it, you don't have to believe me. It doesn't have to make sense to you. I know it to be true. I walked it. God brought me Tamara. See, it's, and, and I live daily now in that relationship, as Kierkegaard would say it, on the strength of the absurd. See, you know who b- believes God the most? Do you know who trusts God the most? Let me say it this way. 
Do you know who trusts God the most at the end? It's the one who trusted God the most at the beginning. The one who has the most faith on the backside of everything. Think of Abraham after he was given Isaac back. In my own life, after I really leaned hard on God on lots of things, the person who then comes to trust God the most is the one who trusted him at the beginning, who resigned himself or herself and took a leap of faith and now is able to walk by faith, as Kierkegaard would say, on the strength of the absurd. Might not make sense to anybody else. Doesn't have to. It's the life of faith. It's not grounded in my ability to articulate it to you in a way that you go, ah, okay, I get it. It's a formula. Let's write a book about it so everyone can follow it. You get that? How many things in your life are you trying to to drum up enough logic in order to take that leap of faith? How many things, whether it's your career or ministry or, or, or whatever, with your finances, how many of you are trying to drum up enough logic to reduce the risk so that this leap of faith doesn't really feel so scary when what we really need to do is just resign ourselves to trusting and just jumping. Most, most everyone I know that has a relationship with God that I would envy has at one point in their life made the decision that affects all other decisions. Do you understand what I mean by that? Do you know anybody like that? They made one decision at one point in their life to jump and to say, I'm all in, God. All my chips are in. The one decision that affects all other decisions. Half of the staff at Antioch, by the way, has testimonies like this. And you listen to it and you're like, man, it's amazing when you throw yourself on God in faith like that, then what comes about on the backside of that? What I, you know, Kierkegaard said, we have to take people, we have to take churchgoers and turn them into Christians. The, the conventional wisdom is that if you go to church, you're a Christian. Kierkegaard hated that because it was about external, cold, crowd truth. And he says we have to take churchgoers and turn them into Christians, which has to do with subjective, organic, authentic truth, where God works in their life and they respond in faith and they end up with God in this relationship with God by the strength of that faith, in some sense by the strength of that absurd, and it's reckoned righteousness. They are now right with God and walk with God and everything is different. The one decision that affects all other decisions. So as we close, I just want to say these couple things here. This morning, how do we, I mean, it's a lot to digest. So how do we digest this? Let me just, a couple different points. Total commitment. Kierkegaard was about total commitment. If you read Jesus, Jesus was about total commitment. Subjective truth is about total commitment. You either are or you are not. Does that make sense? Kierkegaard, I think, understood I think Kierkegaard understood the Bible better than Luther did. In Romans chapter 4, 
And then in Galatians chapter 3, I think it is, Paul talks about this story of Abraham. So when Paul wants to define faith, saving faith, he talks about the story of Abraham and that it was credited to him. His belief was credited to him as righteousness. And so Paul says, you need to have faith like Abraham. Then James comes along and and, uh, we've got it on the screen. Here's what it says in James chapter 2. James chapter 2 says this. In verse 20, I'll start. You foolish men, do you want evidence that faith without deeds, without action is useless? Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together, just like sitting in that chair, right? That the faith and the action are a part of the same thing, subjective truth. And his faith was made complete by what he did. He didn't earn God's approval by doing this. It's the outworking of real faith in action, in truth, subjective truth. And his faith, working with his actions, and his faith was, faith was made complete. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. See, Luther wanted to get rid of the whole book of James from the Bible. Because he's like, you're saved by faith alone. And here's James saying, you're not saved by faith alone. And Kierkegaard understood it better. And he's like, man, when Abraham believed what God said to him, that, that scripture was fulfilled, the prophet, that, that word God saying, you believe and I'm crediting this to you as righteousness, you have faith, that was consummated when God tested that faith, poked on it, and it held, and it, and it proved itself to be true and authentic. And see, James gets it that both of these stories of Abraham come together in this idea of Abraham's faith. They're one and the same. And I think Kierkegaard understood the Bible better than Luther understood it. And so I would say this, the leap of faith means that faith is not a token gesture. We put our faith in God. We enter into it. We ground our our faith in faith, in hope, in trust, not in utility. The crowd, we have to stop loving formulas. The minute you grab a book to tell you how to be a Christian... You're just learning how to keep in step with what the, the herd defines as Christianity. We have to throw ourselves on God. We have to chase after God. We have to talk to God. We have to listen to God. We have to have a relationship with God individually. I love the corporate community of believers. I love it. Church is cool. Remember that? But there's another side to it too where you as an individual believer have to be able to commit yourself totally to God and build that relationship and not just follow spiritual formulas. Um, The three B's. We come to church for these. Belonging, belief, people that think like we do, and behavior, people that act like we do. Nobody better come in that smokes. It's not Christian. You know what I'm saying? Like that's traditional herd Christianity. Belonging, belief, and behavior. It's the crowd, and we have to say, no, 
my Christianity is not defined by belonging to Christians, believing like other Christians, and behaving like other Christians. It's faith, first and, and foremost, that has everything to do with my relationship with God. And then subjective truth. Uh, we're ending on this. I don't know if the, we're going to take the offering in just a second here. But some of us need to be willing to sacrifice the very thing we were promised. Do you know that God sometimes asks, he asks me, he asks you, will you follow me even into the unraveling of your dreams? You know why so many of us are scared to really commit ourselves to God? He might send us to Africa. I don't know why we always think Africa. Nobody thinks Asia or South America, but everyone I've ever talked to, it's like, man, I really don't want to go all in because he'll make me go to Africa. I don't trust God, that he will really lead me if I'm already predetermining where he can and can't take me. When we go all in, in some sense we're saying, God, I'm willing to follow you even into the unraveling of my dreams. I'm willing to even not do anything religious because maybe religion is my drug. Doing things that are good is my drug. Getting the pat on the head is my drug. Maybe what God wants you to do is do nothing but just enjoy him. I don't want my kids to give me a present back every time I give them a present to try and earn it. Does that make sense? Like when I give my kids a present, I just want them to smile and enjoy it. Some of you, all you need, like all God wants for you is to not do anything, but to just enjoy God, be with God. The person who trusts God the most at the end is the person who trusts God the most at the beginning. Father, we want faith but we have so little and I just pray that you would help us that you would nurture our faith you would grow our faith you would take what's little what's like a seed and that, that you would do only what you could do you could draw about in us something bigger and better than, than would ever be there on our own that the fruit in our life would be born of your spirit that the things we learn subjectively in this life would be because you're our teacher, not because we're learning formulas and, and things that we can recite. Father, let us be all in so that we can be with you. If we're not all in, then we're somewhere else as well, and that means we're not with you. Father, for this church, let us be a community. Let us be in relationship. Let us enjoy loving and being loved, but at the same time, let us not lose ourselves in that and somehow think that that replaces the relationship that you desire for and are calling us to, a relationship born of faith. So Father, again, we commit all these things to you in Christ.